0: I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Because I ended the last episode with a rundown of the five Star Trek episodes on which I worked in one capacity or another, I thought it would be appropriate to start this episode with a reading of The spec script I wrote for Star Trek The Next Generation that got me through the door and into the Star Trek offices. Now, when I say spec script, I'm referring to a script that's written on speculation. Every screenwriter I know of writes many, many spec scripts. Written on speculation means that you're doing it entirely on your own. There's no safety net. No one has offered you money. Nobody has offered you a contract. You're doing this entirely on your own time with hopes that maybe someday the right person will read it and miracles will happen. Now, with Star Trek The Next Generation, the showrunner, Michael Piller, had a very unique approach to spec scripts. For most TV shows, the only way you can get a spec script through the door is if you have an agent representing you. Michael Piller was smart enough to realize that Star Trek had a lot of fans who had a lot of great story ideas, and Piller would accept a script from anyone. Didn't matter if you had an agent or not, didn't matter if you had any professional credentials or not, if you wrote a Star Trek script and you sent it into the office, it would get read by someone. So, my script was read by someone. The script is entitled Between Two Darknesses. And honestly, I have to tell you, this script never should have made it through the door. It's still kind of a miracle that I was invited into Pitch Stories at Star Trek The Next Generation based on this script. Because I did just about everything wrong. This was the first dramatic TV script I had ever written and I got the formatting completely ass-backwards. Everything that should have been single-spaced, I double-spaced. And because of that, the script is over twice as long as it really should be. So not only did I break the rules about how long the script would be, I didn't even bother to put in act breaks, which is just ridiculous. So two of the biggest requirements for a TV script, I just completely... I blew it. And whoever read this script at the Star Trek offices would have been entirely justified in throwing this script into the wastebasket. One of my later Star Trek scripts did get thrown into the wastebasket, but that's another story. I'll be talking a lot more about my Star Trek experiences in upcoming episodes, but for now, we're just talking about Between Two Darknesses. I'm gonna read the script, maybe not the whole script, but I'm gonna shoot for reading the whole script. I'm not gonna to try to do character voices because I think that would be too distracting, but I just wanna say one thing about this script before I start reading it. The reason the producers liked this script enough to invite me into Pitch Story Ideas wasn't for any of the reasons I expected. It wasn't because of my super cool science fiction idea. It wasn't because of my amazing science fiction imagery. The reason they liked my script was because they said, I nailed the characters' voices. When they read my script, they could hear their characters voicing my dialogue. That was the first and probably most important lesson I've ever learned as a writer. If you're going to try to write for TV, you have to nail the characters' voices. So, in 1991, at my agent's urging, I wrote a script for Star Trek The Next Generation entitled Between Two Darknesses. I have the original draft right in front of me at my desk. On the title page, there is a stamp from someone at the Star Trek offices that says, Star Trek colon NG, August 28th, 1991, script log. I don't know who at the offices read this script, but I am eternally grateful to them for not throwing it in the wastebasket and for going ahead and slogging through this ridiculously long script. So here we go with Between Two Darknesses. FX Shot, Starship Enterprise in Deep Space. Picard voiceover. Captain's Log, Stardate 4817.6. We are on the frontier of Federation territory where we have just disengaged from a futile attempt to negotiate peace between two Federation candidates, the Shrike and the Grilla. Their mutual choice of war over peace, destruction over life, virtually eliminates any chance that either world will be granted membership in the Federation. Interior Riker's Quarters Riker and Data stand side by side playing a very jazzy trumpet duet while Troy sits nearby with a drink absorbed by the music. Picard voiceover continued, and has left the officers and crew of the Enterprise physically and emotionally strained. For this reason we are traveling to Starbase 23 for some therapeutic rest and relaxation, Meanwhile, we are all doing what we can to unwind. Continued. Riker plays with real feeling, and Data does an impeccable job mimicking him. Aware of Data's mimicry, Riker stops playing and observes Data with pleasure. He and Troy exchange smiles, both amused with Data's apparent enthusiasm and impressed by his obvious proficiency. After a time, Data becomes aware that he is playing solo. He stops and looks at Riker and Troy. Data. You have stopped playing, Commander. Am I doing something wrong? Riker and Troy exchange another quick smile. Riker, not at all, Data. I stopped playing so I could listen to you. You're very good. Troy, better than good, Data. You sounded rather wonderful. Riker, if I didn't know better, I'd swear you were really feeling the music. Data, if you were referring to feeling the vibrations of the sound waves, then I was indeed feeling it, sir. Riker, smiling. No, that's not what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to isn't a physical sensation, it's, it's a heightened state of awareness. Data, in that case, since I have only one state of awareness, I do not think I felt the music. Troy, but you kept playing after Will stopped. Perhaps you did feel something. Data, cogitating. Perhaps. I was absorbed in perfecting my technique, and I was not immediately aware that Commander Riker had stopped playing. Riker sits down next to Troy and smiles proudly at Data. Riker, Data, I do believe you've got soul. Data looks from Riker to Troy. Data, and did you perceive this soul, Counselor Troy? She nods unequivocally. Troy, I did, Data. Jazz music is unknown on Beta Z, but Will has taught me that jazz played with real soul is, well, rapturous. Data, and is Commander Riker's playing rapturous? Riker and Troy look at each other and laugh. Troy, Commander Riker has his moments. Riker, I wasn't born with soul data, but when I have it, I know it. When I can feel the music, it's as though I had a bird's eye view of the universe. Data sits across from them. Data, this is your heightened state of awareness? Riker, nods. It's what they used to call a peak experience. Troy, all sentient life forms have the innate ability to reach heightened states of awareness data, and each has developed ways to reach such a state. For Will, it's playing jazz. For me, it's listening to it. For some, it's painting or sculpting. Riker. Or religion or philosophy. For Betazoids and Klingons, it's emotional passion. For Vulcans, it's logic. We each have our own pathway to these higher states that make us feel that life is worth the effort. Data looks back and forth between them, puzzled. Troy. Does this confuse you, Data? Data. Indeed, it does. Reason would suggest simpler pathways. Should life not be worth the effort, regardless of its highs and lows, simply because it is life? Is it not better to live than to not live? Riker, he's got a point. Troy, yes, but Data, some lack the imagination or the will to live for such a basic reason. For them, life can be an unending low of torment and doubt. Data thinks for a moment, then shakes his head. Data, that I cannot comprehend. Riker, keep playing jazz and you won't have to. Riker hops up as he says this and starts playing. Data rises and joins him to Troy's delight, but they are interrupted by a summons from the bridge. Picard voiceover. Number one, Data, Counselor Troy, to the bridge at once. Riker activates his communicator. We're on our way, sir. Responding to the urgent tone of the captain's voice, Riker and Data sit down their instruments, and the three hurry out of Riker's quarters and head for the bridge. Interior bridge. Riker, Data, and Troy arrive on the bridge where Picard and Worf are already present and take their stations. Before they have even been seated, Picard addresses them. Picard. My apologies for interrupting your leisure time, but we've just received a coded message from the Klingon High Council, and I wanted you all to be present when we heard it. Riker. The Klingon High Council? What could they want with a Federation starship? Picard. Whatever they want with us, it's safe to assume that it will divert us from Starbase 23. Above them, Worf looks up from his panel. Worf. Captain, we have received the last burst. The transmission is now complete. It is in a high-security code that will take a moment to unscramble. Picard. Very well, Mr. Worf. Put it on the viewer when you're ready. Worf. Coming up now, sir. On the main viewer, a burst of scrambled static gives way to an image of a formidable-looking Klingon, Clegg, speaking from the dark High Council chambers. He speaks softly for a Klingon, and with a surprisingly conciliatory manner. Clegg. Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Federation Starship Enterprise, I am Clegg of the Klingon High Council. We come to you for assistance. A Klingon cruiser the Patesh is missing, and we believe it has been destroyed. Its last known position as of two days ago was in your sector. Coordinates 1135600081. Our closest ship is three days from this position. We have requested aid from Starfleet, and they have authorized the High Council to enlist the aid of your ship to investigate the fate of the Patesh. You are requested to proceed at once to the last known coordinates of the Patesh to ascertain the cause of its destruction and to report all findings in this code to the Klingon High Council. We wish you good fortune, Captain Picard, and we thank you for your special service to the Klingon Empire. The image is obliterated by another burst of scrambled static, then the starfield. Picard and Riker look at one another. Riker. No wonder it was in code. It would be embarrassing for the High Council to have no explanation for the loss of a cruiser. Picard. Agreed. But what makes them so certain, I wonder, that the Patesh has been destroyed. Any insights, Mr. Worf? Worf. If I may, sir, the simple fact that the Patesh is not reported in for two days is sufficient evidence for the High Council. Picard. But, Lieutenant Worf, that is at best supposition. Worf. Sir, if it is not inappropriate, perhaps a humorous Klingon saying would help me to explain... Riker rolls around, amazed. Riker, Klingon humor, Worf? Worf, yes, sir. Roughly translated into human terms, the saying is this. Show me a Klingon who is not at his post, and I will show you a dead Klingon. There is dead silence on the bridge. Worf, perhaps I do not tell it well. I myself find it distasteful, but I admit that it is accurate. Picard, then you would be inclined to agree with the High Council. Worf, in my view, it is likely that the Patesh has come to some harm. Picard, understood, Mr. Worf. Send a coded message to the Klingon High Council. Inform them that we are responding to their request, and tell them that it would further our investigations if they could provide us with the last communications from the Patesh. Mr. Vladek, plot a course for the last known location of the Patesh. Warp 5, Mr. Data, we will proceed under the assumption that the Patesh has indeed come to some harm. I hope we will find that it has not. Now this, midway through page 12, would have been the natural place to end the teaser. It's sometimes called a cold open. But as I said, I didn't know anything about the formatting for a dramatic TV script, so I just plunged ahead right into Act 1 without any notification. Interior Captain's Ready Room. Picard and the officers sit assembled in the ready room where Worf is briefing them on the Klingon cruiser Patesh. An image of a surly Klingon is up on the view screen, and Worf stands nearby. Worf, the Patesh is commanded by Captain Korge. Picard, an honored Klingon name, is it not? Worf, correct, sir. His father is the Klingon hero who stole the cloaking technology from the Romulans. Captain Korge himself has also brought much honor and glory to the name. He is a great warrior and hero, and for that reason I agree with the High Council about the fate of his ship. Riker, speaking of the High Council, have we received the Patesh's last communications? Worf, Yes, Commander. They are routine. There is no indication that Captain Kors considered his ship to be in any danger at the time of his last communication. Worf sits down as Picard considers what he has said. Picard. Commander LaForge, we're all aware of the degree of power that would be needed to destroy a Klingon cruiser. Can you tell us who in this sector might command such power? LaForge. In this sector, no one, sir. A Federation starship could do it with difficulty. A Romulan bird of prey would have a pretty good go of it. But no, there's no one in this part of the galaxy with that kind of power you're talking about. No one that we know of. Picard. No one that we know of, indeed. What of that, Mr. Data? Data. Early Vulcan explorers are known to have combed this region, sir, but there is no record that they ever encountered any new life forms or habitable worlds. Since that time, and for that reason, the area has remained largely unexplored. However, I consider it unlikely that there could be such a power in this region that would have escaped the Federation's notice. Picard nods and sighs. Picard. Agreed. Riker leans forward and addresses Data. Riker. Early Vulcan explorers? I knew the Vulcan civilization went through a period of exploration, but I didn't know they ever ventured this far. Data nods. It was a brief but ambitious period. Picard. Well... This is all well and good for a Vulcan history lesson, but it gives us no insights into the possible fate of the Patesh. Number one, what's our ETA? Riker. A little under an hour, sir. Picard. All right. In half an hour's time, we'll slow to warp two and begin long-range scanning. That ought to give us a wide enough safety margin in case the Patesh did encounter a hostile force. Dismissed. The officers get up and leave, but Picard remains, looking up at the image of Korj. FX shot. Exterior Enterprise as it slows from Warp 5 to Warp 2 to begin scanning. Interior Bridge. Picard, Riker, Troy, Worf, and Data are all present on the bridge. Data speaks from his console to Captain Picard. Data. Commencing long-range scanning, sir. Picard over his shoulder. Lieutenant Worf, send a hailing to the direction of the Patesh's last known coordinates. Coded, please, and with pinpoint accuracy. Let's see if we can make contact without announcing our presence to the whole sector. Worf, aye, aye, sir. Data. Captain, long-range sensors are picking up faint energy tracings throughout the sector. Picard, the source? Data. Triangulating now. Worf, Captain, there is no response to our hailing. Picard and Riker exchange worried looks. Picard, very well. Maintain silence. Go to yellow alert. There is a flurry of movement among the officers manning the stations at the rear of the bridge as the yellow alert siren sounds. Data. Captain. I have located the source of the energy tracings. They have originated from a moving point that can be traced back to the vicinity of the last known coordinates of the Patesh. Riker, do sensors pick up anything at this moving point? Data works his panel for a few moments before responding. Data, sensors indicate debris radiating out from the point in much the same way as the energy tracings. Worf, I believe we have located the Patesh. Picard, it appears that you and the High Council were correct, Mr. Worf. Riker, can we have confirmation, Mr. Data? Data, yes, sir. The debris conforms to the mass and configuration of a Klingon cruiser. Worf, sir, shall we go to red alert? Picard is silent for a moment, weighing the situation. Riker looks from Worf to Picard. Riker, shouldn't we notify the High Council? Picard, no to both questions. We will maintain yellow alert. We will hold our position and find out as much as we can before notifying the High Council. Mr. Data, I'd like a complete analysis of the debris in the energy tracings. Have Mr. LaForge assist you. LaForge responds to this over his communicator. LaForge, voiceover. Captain, I believe I can save us some time. Interior Engineering. LaForge is at his console in engineering, looking over some calculations as he speaks. LaForge continued. I've been monitoring the information from the long-range scanners, and I think I can tell you what caused the destruction of the Patesh. Picard, voiceover. We're all interested, Mr. LaForge. LaForge. Well, I'm afraid it's going to raise more questions than it answers, but the energy traces indicate that the Patesh was destroyed by a preventable imbalance in its warp field. Interior Bridge. Geordie's statement causes a bit of a stir on the bridge. Picard. Mr. LaForge, exactly what constitutes a preventable imbalance in the warp field? LaForge, voiceover. Basically, sir, I believe that the Patesh must have attempted to warp out without the benefit of a stable warp field. Riker. Something that could only happen from the inside. Worf begins to snarl at the turn the conversation has taken. LaForge voiceover. That's correct, sir. It suggests one of two things, both of which are virtually unthinkable on a Klingon cruiser. Either the warp engines were unmanned when the Patesh tried to warp out, or there was a saboteur on board. Worf, growing surly. Sir, that is impossible. Either suggestion defiles the name of Corge and dishonors the Empire. Picard, Mr. LaForge, you're quite certain of your conclusion? Interior Engineering. LaForge, yes, sir, I am. I'm sorry, Wharf. I can't believe it myself, but there's no other explanation. Interior Bridge. Wharf is bristling, despite Geordie's apology. Wharf. the High Council will not accept such an explanation, nor will I. Picard, nor should you have to. Lieutenant Commander LeForge's explanation would seem to fit all the facts, but I think we all agree that it remains wholly unsatisfying. Continue on course to the Patesh's earlier coordinates. Data. Captain, my scans of the Patesh debris have revealed a sealed container containing what would seem to be the ship's log. Riker, the log of the Patesh. Let's hope it hasn't been erased by the radiation bloom of the explosion. Picard. Mr. Data, see to it that that log is beamed on board. As soon as it has been thoroughly decontaminated, we shall all meet in the ready room to view its contents. Data gets up from his post and leaves in the turbolift, and Picard turns to address Worf. Picard, Mr. Worf, we shall be depending on you for your impartial analysis of the Batesh log. Worf, aye, aye, sir. Worf maintains his composure, but for a quick grind of the teeth. And again here, this would have been a per- perfectly logical place to end Act One, but again... I neglected to do so. Back to the script on what is now page 23. Interior transporter room. Chief O'Brien stands at the transporter controls and Data and Dr. Crusher stand by as a small object materializes on the pad. The object takes shape slowly and in stages on a pad that is surrounded by a ring-shaped device that stands on the floor. The moment the oval container of the Patesh log materializes, Dr. Crusher scans it with a handheld meter. O'Brien. It should be clean, Doctor. I've scrubbed it three times through. Data. Excellent work, Chief O'Brien. Dr. Crusher finishes her investigation and closes her meter with a brief smile at O'Brien and Data. Crusher. It's uncontaminated and intact as far as I can tell. Captain Korsh must have been aware that the Patesh was in jeopardy because he took precautions to make certain that his log would survive, even if he didn't. Data cocks his head at this. Interior ready room. The officers are once again gathered around the conference table in the ready room. Data is speaking, directing everyone's attention to the viewer on the wall. Data. It now appears that what we have recovered is not the regular log of the Patesh, for there is only one brief entry. Picard, may we see this entry, Mr. Data? Data. Aye, aye, sir. Data pushes a button to play the message. On the screen appears an unusually haggard Klingon, Captain Korge. He sits slumped in the command chair of the deserted bridge of the cruiser Patesh, and speaks in a slow, listless monotone. KORJ This is KORJ of the Klingon cruiser, Patesh. I do not know why I trouble myself to leave this message. Whoever finds it, and I do not think anyone will, cannot understand what has brought the crew of the Patesh to this. I have no crew. They have all succumbed, as I now wish to succumb. It is better to succumb than to live with this. If this message is heard by Klingons, do not judge me by what I am now, but by what I was. I bring dishonor to the Empire, I know. I must try to escape. I will try to flee, but my engines are unattended. It, It will not work, but I will say this. Do not approach the sentinel. Do not. The message ends abruptly. The officers are speechless. Picard looks at Worf, whose head is bowed and who's breathing slowly and heavily. Riker notices that Troy at his side has closed her eyes and gasps for breath. Riker, Deanna? Troy, whispering, The emptiness. Pause. Oh, Will! She cries out and rises from the table. Riker rises quickly as she collapses to the floor. In an instant, Crusher is at her side, and Worf has erupted into a growling fit, spewing Klingon curses and tearing the room apart. Everyone jumps to their feet as chaos erupts. Picard taps Communicator. Security, to the ready room! Restrain Mr. Worf! But Data and Geordie have already done so. Two security officers appear as Crusher tears herself away from Troy, just long enough to give Worf a sedative. The security officers take Worf from Data and LaForge and look to Picard. Picard, take him to his quarters and call me when he awakes. Crusher returns to Troy, whom Riker has returned to her chair. Picard steps over to them. Picard, Dr. Crusher, what has happened? Crusher speaks without looking up from her examination. Crusher, Deanna's respiration is dangerously low. Riker, I'll get her to sickbay. Riker picks her up, lifts her into his arms, and carries her from the ready room. Before she leaves, too, a breathless Dr. Crusher turns to Captain Picard. Crusher, you saw Captain Kors' last message. That's what has happened. She leaves quickly, and Picard stands alone in the ransacked ready room. FX shot, Enterprise cruising through deep space. Interior bridge. Riker debarks from the turbolift and steps quickly to his seat, assessing the captain as he does so. Riker, Captain, Counselor Troy has regained consciousness, but she's despondent. Picard, Has Dr. Crusher diagnosed her condition? Riker, No, sir, she's at a loss. Picard, What of Lieutenant Worf? Riker takes his seat next to Picard. Riker, The doctor thinks we were witness to a Klingon grief reaction. He should be in control when he wakes up from sedation. Picard, let us hope so. Ambassador Kalar's death provoked a similar reaction and with terrible results. Number one, what do you make of Captain Corge's message? Up until now, the last word I would ever have expected to hear coming from a Klingon would be the word flee. And yet we heard Korge say, I will try to flee. There are few things in the universe that could make a Klingon turn tail and run, and I would not wish to encounter any of them. Riker, seeing a Klingon, and a Klingon hero at that, reduced to such utter helplessness, was truly chilling. Picard, yes, I was struck by the fact that he was alone on the bridge. A Klingon cruiser has a command crew of fourteen. Where were they? Riker, dead? Picard, no, I was left with the strong impression that they were there, but they were not at their posts. Riker, which contradicts the Klingon joke, Worf told us. Picard, yes, it does that. And what of this sentinel, to which Korge referred? Riker, the sentinel, a sentinel stands guard. Picard, yes, but over what? Data turns to them from his panel. Data, Captain, Commander, I believe we shall soon find out. Riker, what have you got, Data? Data, sensors have picked up an object 3.1 light years from the Patesha's last recorded coordinates. What we now know to be the intended escape route of Captain Korsh originates from this object. Picard, Mr. Data, can you put it on the viewer? Data turns back to his console. Data, yes, sir, just coming into range. Picard, maximum magnification. Suddenly, an object appears on the main viewer. It is a rather innocent-looking metal sphere with little functional detail, just floating in space. Picard stands and tugs his tunic into place. Picard, the Sentinel? Data, yes, Captain, I believe so. A flicker of doubt crosses Data's face, and he turns to address the Captain. Data, but Captain, there is something I do not understand. Picard, what is that, Mr. Data? Data. The sentinel, sir. It does not appear to be guarding anything. Fade out. That's the closest I come to an act break. Fade out on page 32. Back to the script. Interior sick bay. Dr. Crusher sits in her office recording a log entry. Crusher. Medical officer's log, start date 4817.9. Report on the conditions of Lieutenant Worf and Counselor Deanna Troy. Lieutenant Worf is, three hours later, still sleeping off a sedative that should have had a duration of only an hour. I can only guess that he is in a state of near-complete withdrawal, an unusual and extreme variation of the classic Klingon grief response. I believe that Worf's reaction, although extreme, is understandable in light of the shocking fate of the Patesh, and is not dangerous at this time. Deanna Troy appears to be a victim of her empathetic abilities, which have made her vulnerable to what she describes as a profound despair that she felt from Captain Korge in his log recording. I am keeping her in sickbay for continued observation. I have not yet made a diagnosis of her condition, but Counselor Troy appears to be suffering from depression. Picard enters sickbay as Dr. Crusher finishes up her log. Picard, Dr. Crusher, is there anything to report on either Lieutenant Worf or Counselor Troy? Crusher, no change with Dwarf, Captain. As for Diana, you can see for yourself. She might be pleased to see you. Picard nods, obviously preoccupied. Crusher, have you found out anything about the Sentinel? Picard, precious little. We don't know to whom it belongs. We don't know why it caused the Captain and crew of the Patesh to become so incapacitated that they would, for all intents and purposes, destroy themselves. Crusher leads Picard to a section in the rear of sickbay. Crusher, well, all I know is that its effect on Captain Korge has left both Worf and Deanna emotionally devastated. Deanna is bordering on clinical depression. They stop in front of the Enterprise's version of a padded cell. Troy sits in the center of an unmade bed, pale, silent, eyes down. Picard is taken aback, but Crusher lays a quieting hand on his arm. Crusher, Deanna, there's someone here to see you. Deanna looks up as Picard and Crusher step through the light force barrier to the room. She looks up at her vi- as her visitors sit. Troy, hello, Captain. Picard, Deanna, we're all very concerned about you. Troy nods. I I know, I can tell. Picard, of course you can. But you still feel something else, don't you? After a long while, Troy nods sadly. Dr. Crusher indicates that it is all right for Picard to go on. Picard, after we heard the message, you said something to Will Riker about the emptiness. What did that mean? What emptiness did you feel? Troy wipes away tears as she recalls Corge's message. She speaks slowly as though drained. Troy, I felt hollowness, despair, futility. All of Captain Corge's existence reduced to pointless absurdity. She looks up at Picard, tears welling up anew. Her voice has life in it now, but it takes the form of horror. Troy, Captain, his, his soul had been crushed. I felt it. I still feel it. She crumbles slowly to the bed, and Crusher does her best to comfort her. Picard is shaken. Picard, I'm sorry, Diana. Doctor, is there nothing that can be done to relieve her misery? Crusher shakes her head. Our common mood-altering drugs are ineffectual on the raw emotional psyche of a Betazoid. Jean-Luc, find out what destroyed Captain Korge, and we may be able to do something for her. If we don't soon, we may be forced to return her to Betazed. Interior Bridge Data and LaForge stand side-by-side at the science console at the rear of the bridge, studying representative images of the Sentinel, in whole and in detail. Riker appears beside them to check on their progress. Riker. Any information, gentlemen? LaForge looks up from the console. LaForge. Very little, sir. All we know is that it's a little over a kilometer in diameter, that it has about one-fiftieth the mass that its size would suggest, that it has no motive power, no weaponry, and no provisions for life support, and that it scares the hell out of Klingons. Riker gives Geordie a sharp look. Riker, humans too, Mr. LaForge. LaForge, yes, sir. Data observes the momentary tension with curiosity. Data, we also know that our sensors do not penetrate beyond its shell. Riker, well, what happens when our sensors get beyond the shell? Are they absorbed? Are they deflected? Data, Neither, sir. They simply cease to sense. We do not know why. Riker, sighs. All right. What else don't we know? Data, we do not know how to communicate with it. The shell does house a primitive communication device and an assemblage of simple logic circuits. Riker, have you tried to communicate with it? Data, yes, sir, but we do not know what language to use. It has not responded to any of the 2.2 million languages currently in use, both in and out of the Federation. Riker, Well, do we know how long it's been here? Data. No, sir, but your question does suggest a new line of inquiry. If it has been here a long time, we may determine its origin by matching its style and technology to that of a particular historical epoch of a known civilization. Riker. In which case, we may be able to communicate with it in some archaic tongue. Data. That is a reasonable assumption, Commander. I regret that of the 10.7 million archaic languages recorded by Federation linguists, I am familiar with only 450,000. LaForge, all right, Data, let's crack the history books. We might as well start with A for Andorians. Riker, call me if you need to know which letter comes next, gentlemen. There is unmistakable sarcasm in Riker's remark that makes Geordie bristle. LaForge, under his breath, aye, aye, Captain Bly. Geordie goes back to work, but again, Data notices the flare-up of tension with curiosity. Interior Captain's Quarters. Picard sits at his desk, apparently lost in a daydream. His breathing slows almost to a stop as he vividly recalls lying on the Borg ship, feeling his humanity being slowly taken away from him, one small piece at a time, by the Borg machinery. He recalls his own voice sounding like the voice of a machine, referring to his new self as Locutus of Borg. A hail from his communicator jolts him from the vision, and he looks up and around at his strange surroundings, finally recognizing them as his own quarters. He taps the communicator on his desk. Picard. Picard here. Riker, voiceover. Riker, sir, on the bridge. We think we've determined the origins of the Sentinel. Picard. On my way. He blinks and shakes his head as though trying to get rid of something before he gets up and leaves. Interior Bridge. Picard arrives on the bridge and takes his seat. The Sentinel hangs there on the main viewer, inert. Picard. Report number one. Riker comes around from the science station and takes his seat beside the captain. Riker. Riker. Sir, do you recall our earlier briefing at which Commander Data mentioned early Vulcan explorers? Picard. Yes. Did they leave some record of an encounter with the Sentinel? Riker. No, sir. We now believe that they built the Sentinel. Picard. Surprised. Built it! Data steps around to the front of the bridge to address the captain. Data. Yes, sir. We have matched certain design and fabrication elements from the Sentinel to characteristic traits and motifs from that particular era of Vulcan history. Our best estimation is that the Vulcan explorers constructed the Sentinel between six and 8,000 years ago. Picard, best estimation? Surely, Mr. Data, now that we have established that this is a Vulcan artifact, we can go back to historical records to establish the age and the purpose of the device. Data, no sir, we cannot. We have found no such record. Riker, ancient Vulcan charts show this entire region to be devoid of life, matter, and phenomena. Irked, Picard takes a deep breath. Very well. Let us speak to someone on Vulcan. Riker, I've already taken the liberty of contacting the scientific area on Vulcan, sir. There is a Sage Selick on the channel now. Picard, on screen. An image appears on the main viewer of an elderly Vulcan scientist in a vast laboratory. The Vulcan Selick turns to face the screen. Selick, greetings. This is Sage Selick of the scientific area on the planet Vulcan. How may I serve the Federation Starship Enterprise? Picard stands and tugs his tunic into place. Picard, Sage Selak, I am Captain Jean Luc Picard of the Starship Enterprise. We ask your assistance with a matter of Vulcan scientific history. We are presently at coordinates 1135600081, where we are attempting to study an ancient artifact of Vulcan origin. We believe that this artifact was the indirect cause of an accident in which a Klingon cruiser was destroyed. Selak has entered the coordinates into an information console and looks up after reading the output. Selak, I am distressed to hear this, Captain Picard, but there is no record of a Vulcan artifact in the coordinates you mention. Picard. Selak, certain elements of design and construction that are evident on the artifact seem to match those of a period of Vulcan history between six and 8,000 years ago. Selak, a period during which the Vulcan civilization enthusiastically explored this sector of the galaxy, among many others. Your conclusion that the object in question is of Vulcan origin is sound, Captain Picard, but the historical records of those explorations do not support it. There is no record that any Vulcan ship of the period placed any devices or instruments at those coordinates, or indeed at any other point in that sector. Picard, but Sage Selleck, the captain of the Klingon ship, referred to the object as the Sentinel. Surely there is mention of such a device somewhere in your history. Selleck, I am sorry to disappoint you, Captain, but there is no mention of a Sentinel in our historic records of that time. May I ask Captain, out of curiosity, over what does this object stand sentinel? Picard, hesitant. I am afraid it doesn't appear to stand sentinel over anything, Selleck. That is why we contacted you. We had hoped that you might be able to tell us. Selleck. I regret that I was unable to help Captain Picard. Picard is about to say something more, but he stops. Then, after a moment, speaks. Picard, I too regret it. We must have been mistaken. Selleck, not mistaken, Captain. Simply illogical. Live long and prosper. Selleck holds up his hand and parts his fingers. Picard, live long and prosper, Selleck. Picard holds up his hand and parts his fingers, barely able to conceal his dissatisfaction. The image of Selleck disappears and is replaced by the Sentinel. Picard, well, we now know the Vulcan position. Riker, if Deanna were here, at least we'd know whether he was lying. Data, sir, Sage Selleck was not lying. Like myself, a Vulcan is incapable of lying. Furthermore, he was correct in his reasoning. There is no proof that the sentinel came from Vulcan. Picard nods his head, perturbed. Picard, perhaps next time, Mr. Data, you might be so kind as to coach me before I enter into a debate with a Vulcan. Data looks at Picard with puzzlement. There is a distinct level of tension aboard the bridge to which he cannot quite attribute a cause. Data, sir, I did not say that the sentinel is not from Vulcan, I merely said that there is no proof that it is from Vulcan. However, if you will allow me, I believe I can supply proof. Picard gives him a level stare as he takes his seat. Picard, very well, Mr. Data. Data, thank you, sir. Data appears to stare at Picard just for an instant before turning to walk up to the communications console. Data, Sage Selleck's conclusion notwithstanding... I believe it would behoove us to attempt communication with the Sentinel using the ten archaic Vulcan languages known to have been used between six and 8,000 years ago. Picard, make it so. Data begins to manipulate the controls on the console, explaining to Picard and Riker as he does so. Data, the ten languages can all be traced back to a common root tongue. Commonalities in alphabet, phonetics, and syntax should simplify the search to some degree. Riker, may we get on with it, Mr. Data. Data stops to look up at Riker, who is testy once again. Data, I am proceeding as quickly as I can, sir. I thought that you and the captain would both appreciate an explanation while you waited. Picard, that's fine, Mr. Data. Please go on. Data, thank you, sir. As I was saying, the difficulty lies not only in choosing the correct language, but also in choosing the correct word or words that will trigger a response from the communication device on the sentinel. I have deduced that Captain Korge of the Patesh was somehow able to communicate with the Sentinel. However, I do not believe that a Klingon, no matter how well educated he may be, would be conversant in archaic Vulcan languages. The only way, then, that Captain Korge could have stirred a response from the Sentinel would have been for him to have used the key word inadvertently. It is my conclusion that there is at least one word in the Klingon language that has a synonym in one of these Vulcan tongues. A word to which the sentinel responded, and will respond again. Once they discovered this key, it would have been fairly simple for the Klingons to deduce the rest and translate between the two languages. I am merging the two lingua bases in an attempt to find the key word. Picard, commendable work, Mr. Data. Data watches his console intently for a few moments, then looks up at the captain. Data, continued. Captain, I believe I have found the key word, says Klingon word. To the Klingons, it is a formal greeting and to the ancient Vulcans it was in order to respond. There is your proof, Captain, that the Sentinel is of Vulcan origin. Picard, very good, Commander Data. We'll take this up with Selic another day. For now, please address the Sentinel with your key word. Data, aye, aye, Captain. I am programming the ship's computer to give us instantaneous translation to and from the Vulcan USEC language. Data manipulates a few more controls, then transmits the signal to the Sentinel. Data, transmitting now and with a beep, the signal is sent. A silence falls over the bridge as every officer present watches the image of the Sentinel on the main viewer. For a full 30 seconds, nothing happens. Picard stands and takes a step closer to the viewer, and Riker follows. Then, when the suspense is almost unbearable, a small light blinks at the very top of the Sentinel, and a tinny machine voice is heard on the bridge. This. Is. Sentinel. And here we are with something finally happening at the top of page 54. Now, if this was a professionally written 60-minute TV script, we'd be wrapping things up at page 54. In fact, we'd be running over. As I said, this script never should have made it past the screener. I think you only get one chance to cheat like that in life, and I'm really glad that this was the time I, I got away with it. Be sure to join me for the next episode of Far-Fetched in which I continue my dramatic reading of my Star Trek The Next Generation spec script Between Two Darknesses, in which Captain Picard displays his deteriorating mental condition by getting up out of his command chair and not tugging on his tunic.